0: Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle and Toby Vaughan, Chief Investment Officer at Brown Shipley. Before we get going, if you're interested in having your investments assessed, send your details to the Investors Chronicle Portfolio Clinic. You can download a form at www.investorschronicle.co.uk forward slash portfolio dash clinic forward slash or email portfolio.clinic at ft.com or Leonora Walters at ft.com. Everyone changes job from time to time and fund managers are no exception but manager moves can have serious implications for the funds they leave behind and the investors who have their money in them. Taha, why do investors need to take note if the manager of a fund they invest in leaves?
1: Hi, Leonora. Um I think take note is, is the perfect way to describe what, what investors should do. Uh, and th- there are a few f- few reasons why. So a fund manager, I suppose, is, is kind of the guardian of the, the style and process and the way a fund invests. So if a manager leaves, you have to kind of sit back and think is this is that style and process going to change you know if they're if it's an equity fund then this fund manager might actually be responsible for meeting the companies they invest in in which case you have to think oh hold on if someone else is going to do that are they going to be as good are they going to be different again you didn't you know you're going to just kind of see what's going to happen what's going to change um also it's what's worth taking note and understanding why this fund manager has left. Uh, something people kind of often, uh, kind of is the second stage and people often forget to look at that. If they've left just going to just go and manage another fund, that makes sense. If they're leaving and not going to manage another fund or not doing anything, then you have to wonder whether there's a kind of wider issue, a corporate governance problem at the fund house. And that should, you know, maybe drive some questions. I suppose, you know, you're buying into, when you're buying into a fund, you're buying into a manager plus the process. And if one changes, you need to reassess.
0: Okay. So what should you do when a manager leaves?
1: Um, okay. Well, the first thing I would say, uh, absolutely do not sell straight away. Uh, there's, nev- there's rarely any situation in which a manager leaves and you should immediately withdraw your assets. Um, you should always take time, never make a hasty decision and try and figure out whether you still want to be in the fund or not. First thing, figure out and try and understand from the company whether the process is going to st- stay the same. Is, the, is there a, kind of a co-manager? Is there a team of analysts behind this fund manager that has left? And if they're staying there... Then is the process the same and is it just going to be implemented by someone differently? That could be okay. And then you give it a bit of time to see whether this person was as good. Perfect. Um, Also worth checking out what fund analysts think. They spend a lot of time meeting fund managers. They have some context. Um, So we we provide that kind of information as well. Kind of see whether something substantially is going to change or whether you think that the people that they've put in place to, to replace the fund manager are going to carry on doing the same thing as well.
0: Okay, now um, in uh, what situations can a fund manager departure, such as a retirement, be more of an issue? Uh,
1: so yeah, this is this is when I suppose um, the fund manager has has more control, and so now I suppose we're talking about fund managers who own the company which owns the fund. So we're talking people like Terry Smith and Fundsmith, Nick Train, Michael Linzo with Linzo Train, both imaginatively named companies. Uh, you know, Neil Woodford Woodford Investment Management, uh, and and things like that, because. What you have there is that you have the the process, the style, the manager, and the brand and the company all tied into one person, and that's a lot of power for someone to think. Oh, I'm just going to step back and give it all up. You know, it's it's hard when you've got your name above the door to step back from a fund and say, "Oh, someone else can manage this now." So, retirement planning in uh, in companies such as these tend to be poorer because it's hard for, for someone to plan for their own retirement because you know, especially when they're I don't want to say egotistical, but you know, kind of have so much vested in this fund and the company and everything it does.
0: Okay. And, um, you know, what kind of companies is it less of an issue? Uh,
1: I suppose it's the opposite. So we're looking at larger firms where, where the firm takes control for retirement planning, uh, rather than the manager, because again, people inherently are quite bad at planning for themselves so the firm goes well hold on you're now reaching x age we're going to, we assume you're going to step down or we're going to ask you to step down and we're going to start planning for what going to ha- what happens when you leave uh, so you know there are some i suppose larger firms or firms with lots of fund houses lots of fund managers lots of analysts they're better at kind of managing the the handover
0: Okay. But those are, as suppose, generalisations, um, it all comes down to, you know, how each individual firm, large or small, handles it. So what would be an example of a manager departure that wasn't handled well and was it typical?
1: So in the last few years, I think the classic uh, for me is uh, Newton Asian Income, which was managed by Jason Pidcock up until mm. about May 2015. And that was
0: a large firm, was it? wasn't it? it was, yeah, Who, yeah. yeah.
1: Newton are, are, yeah. are gigantic mm. uh, and... Um, and I think they well, as I go through this, uh, they they probably learned quite a lot from this process. So he he left in May 2015, and he'd been at the fund for 10 years, very much um, in the context of what he was doing, a star manager, um, as we would describe them, huge brand, uh, kind of you know had a lot of assets uh was really popular was providing really good performance and then he just upped and left and it came as a surprise to to everyone he's now at jupiter um but the problem there was is that newton had no official plan had not kind of spoken to fund analysts the large fund buyers like wealth managers stuff like that hadn't spoken about who was going to take over the process if jason left and it just it caught everyone by surprise including newton as well i imagine and then investors were just spooked because uh they reassessed and went well actually we everything i spoke about earlier they had no context they had no way of knowing who was going to take over the fund uh with whether the process was going to stay the same and rather than taking the risk and finding out they just pulled their assets so the fund halved in the space of 12 months and we're talking about 2.2 billion leaving the fund in 12 months which is a lot of money
0: Okay, so looking at uh, the opposite side of things, you know what would be an example of managed departure that was handled well? Uh,
1: so something slightly more recently. Um, so uh, listeners and readers might remember Nigel Thomas stepping down from the AXA familton UK Select Opportunities Fund. Really, really good succession planning. In fact, probably overhanded succession planning when I, when I go through this. So Chris St. John is the manager now, but he was named uh, lead manager on the AXA UK Mid Fund, AXA UK Midcap Fund in 2011. And in 2016, they actually launched another product for for Chris St. John to invest in a similar style to select opportunities, but just for non-UK investors. And actually, this was all touted to be this really long succession planning for Mr. Thomas.
0: To basically prepped and kind of like, yeah, almost like, what, seven, eight years in advance? In advance,
1: yeah. Because I mean, you know, it's Mm. easy to see when a manager is going to get to 65, I suppose. but yeah, and this was really good. So when it when they announced that Mr. Thomas was stepping down, it was quite easy to go, well, actually, yeah, well, Chris St. John's going to take his place. You all do that because we told you that years ago. And also, oh, look, has his three-year track record. Isn't that great? And, and then it's just a lot easier and investors were not spooked at all.
0: Okay. Now you've also been looking at a fund which announced a manager departure earlier this week. Um which fund is it and um why might this be um not a particularly good situation for investors?
1: It was the JP Morgan Global Macro Opportunities Fund. Uh and this is this is um quite an interesting one because again going back to what I was talking about a surprise uh kind of no plan in place but it, it, there is context of this so whoever who was left is james elliot and he was co-manager of the fund along with shrenik shah uh, he was also uh, chief investment officer of multi-asset solutions so kind of in charge of the wider strategy in the team of analysts and kind of the absolute return uh, strategy that jp morgan have um he was integral to the strategy actually he co-created it with um, shrenik shah and talib sheikh in 2012 and it's been kind of been following that process and He's helped hone that process over over that time. Uh, but it's quite a bad thing because I just mentioned Talib Sheikh. He actually left last year.
0: Two departures in two, two years de- on yeah. the same fund. Well, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: Not even two years in mm. the space of 14 months. Um, two, and two significant departures in the space of 14 months. So, yeah, definitely one for investors to sit back and think and look at whether that process can remain the same, given they've lost two important people.
0: Uh, important question. Who's going to run the fund now that James has gone?
1: Uh, so Shrenik Shah, who I mentioned earlier, he's uh, he's... He co-create, co-created the strategy as well. He's going to be sole charge of the fund. Um, he, so
0: some continuity then no, at absolutely, least. Here. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, he's worked on it since day one, so I suppose you could say it's in a safe pair of hands. He will be supported by a big team of analysts and the, the kind of wider multi-asset solutions team at JP Morgan. So it isn't a drastic change, but you know, there's still two big people that have left as well.
0: Will he make any changes to the way it's run?
1: Uh, unlikely. No. Um, again, this is a kind of kind of stringent process that they follow and have followed for several years. So I imagine he'll just be implementing it in the same way that they always have done.
0: Okay, well, does that mean investors shouldn't be that worried about this then?
1: Um, yes and no. So I suppose, when well, we talked about this last year when Talib Sheikh left, um, but now it seems that analysts are more concerned than they were last year. I think it's the compounded effect um, of Talib Sheikh and James Elliott leaving in such a short space of time. Also, um when Talib Sheikh left, he actually mainly did the fixed income side, which was easily replaced by analysts, whereas James Elliott does seem to be more integral to the way the fund was run. Also, being chief investment officer, he has a lot of oversight and a lot of input into how the strategy was run. So I suppose, yeah, the compounded effect isn't great. Um, there is form on this, and it does happen, especially with these kind of unique strategy products, which this is. It's a, a, a J.P. Morgan process. Uh, and we actually saw it with uh, Standard Life Investments and their gas fund. Mm-hmm. It was huge developed by kind of three or four people, and then eventually they all split and launched the exact same products at different firms. As in Investco Perpetual, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and even Investors. Mm. Um, and, well, with Gars, we have seen performance tail off. I'm not saying that could that's the same mm. thing that happened to J.P. Morgan, but it is definitely a reason as to why that Gars product isn't as good as it used to be. Ironically, that is something that made this J.P. Morgan fund so popular because they're rival products, but, you know, that's just a, a coincidence. <laughs> I suppose it's wait and see. Um, J.P. Morgan was, say... The analysts can fill the void, and you know Shrenik Shah is still there. But as we kind of talked about earlier, it's it's kind of a weird thing when it's when everything is going well, it's about the managers because they're easier to market. And then as soon as the manager leaves, it becomes about the process. So I suppose you have to just wait and see uh, whether it works out or not.
0: Okay, thank you, Taha, and see which other funds might experience a change at the top in the not too distant future in this week's big theme in the fund section of the magazine or at www dot investorschronicle.co.uk. Since the election of India's market-friendly, albeit controversial, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, MSCI India Index has risen 69%. Not surprisingly, many investors think that if Indian equities are to continue to do well, it is important that Mr Modi is re-elected in the Indian election, which is taking place this month. But Taha, You've been speaking to an investor who thinks that the outcome of the Indian election is not important. Who is
1: this? So I, I was speaking to uh, Avinash Vazirani and he is the manager of the Jupiter Indif- India Fund, which he's been managing since 2008, uh, a strategy actually he's been running since 1995. Very popular fund, uh, very interesting guy and you know he's seen some election cycles in, in that time. Um, but the the main reason is that he, um, he says that the policies that Narendra Modi has put into place will are irreversible, and the benefits will stick so it 's kind of it 's irrelevant who comes into power next because the the kind of structure and the the beneficial policies that Mr. Modi has put in you know, as, as you said, despite being controversial has really uh, benefited the economy, benefited consumers, and benefited the way the the economy is now working uh, so in that case it's very unlikely that someone's going to come in and kind of strip back the social security policies he's put in or strip back the kind of better bankruptcy code that he's put in and things like that. So it kind of, it doesn't really matter.
0: Okay, so what does uh, Mr Vazirani think will drive Indian equities going forward?
1: Um, it's kind of it's the foundation of some of the policies that I just mentioned uh, and he is kind of he's allowed he's, his financial inclusion I suppose is the biggest thing that Mr Modi has done which has made the Indian consumer uh, a lot more secure economically and uh, more financially able to to do different things with their money uh, and this has all kind of increased the, the velocity of money within the economy which has helped consumer growth helped make it easier to do business and helped companies uh, kind of well help people buy more things I suppose is the easiest way to do it GDP growth has slowed slightly but still maintained a, a lot higher figure than we see in any of the developed economies so let's not talk about it too badly yeah. uh, and all of that should benefit the kind of structure of the portfolio that he's created.
0: Okay and via what companies is Mr Vazivani exploiting this?
1: So he's, he's very much in favour of consumer uh, focused stocks uh, a lot of financials uh, one example is a company called Tasty Bites uh, which is just a fun name uh, It kind of does packaged food and become very popular and obviously a classic, classically aligned to uh, rising consumer wealth and expenditure.
0: Okay, so is uh, Jupiter India Fund performing strongly as a result?
1: Uh, One of those yes and no questions. Um, So a long-term yes, over five years it's returned 98% versus 87% for the MSCI India Index uh, in sterling terms uh, and 55% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Short-term though, uh, very much no. Uh, It's actually down 9% over one year uh, compared to the index, which has risen 11%. Um, a few reasons why, um, kind of going back to what I said earlier, Mr. Vazarani does really favour small and medium stocks that are really focused towards the consumer, Um, but... Uh, one of the things, uh, one of the policies that Mr Modi implemented was making it easier for Indian consumers to save. So a lot of them have started kind of investing in their equivalent of, of the ISO and SIP. Um, but these are generally targeted towards large cap funds. So you've seen a lot of money going into the market from the Indian consumer. But is, this has been heavily weighted towards Indian large caps, which obviously he doesn't own. Um, a few other co- things as well. A couple of stop blow ups with Hindustan Petroleum and Reliance Capital. Um, some serious issues there, but they've taken a bit of a hit and are really out of favor right now. Also, um, the rupee has fallen and the dollar has risen, which has really boosted exporters. And again, as I mentioned, Mr. Fazerani is very much focused towards the Indian consumer and domestic stocks, so hasn't benefited from exporters doing better.
0: Okay. And is he going to change the fund's investment strategy as a result?
1: Uh, No. And I suppose that's always a good thing when you ask that question to a manager. Uh, No, he he very much expects this growth, uh, large cap trade to unwind. Uh, He doesn't know when, but he does say it will at some point. Also, his his stock blowups like Hindustan Petroleum, he's very bullish on... On the outlook for them, you know, he says that petrol consumption is still going 12% year-on-year and he's done petroleum has about, I think he said, 15,000 uh, outlets across India. So very much uh, kind of aligned to the the same kind of growing consumer wealth and increasing car usage in India as well. So he's yeah, he's just waiting for the trade to unwind and he thinks the stocks are underpriced, I suppose.
0: Thinking about Asian equities more widely, Toby, do you think they're a good area to allocate to at the moment?
2: Uh, in short i I would say yes, but sometimes the case over the long you know is is kind of time horizon dependent the you know the long term arguments for for areas like Asian equities and a lot of emerging markets is, is very strong you know the fundamentals are underpinned by stronger long term growth uh, outlook that's driven by both demographics and and the potential for productivity to improve. I think when you look at it from a policy perspective as well, some of these areas have more policy flexibility than what we've got in the in the developed world. Um, so they can actually manage cycles in a more effective manner, be it fiscally or mon- monetarily. And I think valuation, which is often put important for long-term uh, investing, again, you know, P is a sub-15 generally um, for, for the broader Asian equities as uh, a as well. So these are long-term factors that support the, uh, the um uh, the arguments for Asian equities, i.e., you know, structural growth, policy framework, and valuation. In a shorter term, um, I think what what we've seen is a very, very supportive year-to-date environment for Asian equities and risk assets generally. And you can see why. I think mainly, you know, that progress we've seen on the geopolitical front. Uh, together with that big movement we've seen in, 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 in global rate expectations have all supported Asian equities as well. And I think we're at that point now, shorter term, where momentum might fade, but I still think the arguments are in place for it to be quite attractive uh, relative to other asset classes.
0: Okay. And um, do you think that any particular areas in Asia look particularly promising?
2: I think, uh, you know, um, we do a lot of our, our allocations on a regional basis, but I would say actually that... <laughs> it might be slightly controversial, given the size of returns we 've already seen year to date, but I still think Chinese equities um, offer offer a decent uh, investment opportunity set uh, short and medium term you know arguably that 's surprising to say, given that most you know Chinese indices have gone up over thirty um, uh, percent year to date and they're actually back towards levels that we saw in may 2018 um so you know uh, the size of those returns is not going to be repeated but we still think there's potential there because we have seen in the very short term a slight uh, stabilization of macro data in china over the past couple of weeks we've seen that uh, evidence in a number of different data series such as um the pmi we've also got that potential feed through from from some of that easing Uh, policy framework in china that came through in the second half of last year we do expect that to start to come through and have continued positive effects on the short-term data and um, and also we're in that environment where you know we talk about certain regions as well i think uh, global factors still dominate uh, asia and global factors still dominate regions and countries within that and 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 the environment for global risk is, is has been improving given what we've seen in terms of broader financial conditions globally and this improved rhetoric we've seen on the geopolitical front around trade talks.
0: Okay, I mean, on that subject, will Asian equities, including Chinese equities, be helped by US President Donald Trump extending the deadline for Chinese tariff increases?
2: Yeah, I think, I think, uh, will they be helped? Yes. And have they been helped? Yes. Um, and you know, I think that, the, the, you know, a lot of these Asian markets began to move before that formal announcement that probably came around a, three weeks to a month or so, I don't, you know, know the exact date. Um, but yes, I think the reality is, if we think about more local factors, a lot of Asian equities and, and markets within that are inherently linked to the global e- export cycle. They are inherently linked to the global trade cycle. They're inherently high beta markets. So any progress on that has a positive effect on global trade will probably be supportive, um, for, uh, for Asian equities and I, and i think we did see one of the threats to global trade emerging with the with with Donald Trump and his rhetoric that he was taking which was initially targeted um at China you know global global trade has been a big driver of global growth over the past few decades so if we go into a more protectionist protectionist environment this is a big big threat so the fact that rhetoric has been improving between China and the US and we're getting positive comments from officials on both sides uh, of that and the fact that there was a formal delay in the extension of tariffs um, announced by Trump, and, and, and even even more recently, China as well also delayed the imposition of tariffs on some, some US uh, imports. This is all positive, um, given that trade is so important to these areas. Uh, but if we take a step back as well, you know, there's the global factor to take into account. And, you know, for global growth, uh, global stock markets, um, you know, a, a, a rise in protectionism would be unwelcome at a late stage in the cycle. So when you see things like the tariffs being extended, that is a progress that also makes global investors feel more relaxed. And that naturally has an effect on Asian equities and Chinese equities in particular.
0: Okay, so trade tensions are maybe um easing a bit, but what are the main risks facing Asian equities at the moment um if not uh, a trade war
2: yeah and i always I always go to kind of uh, global and local factors um and you know on, and 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 arguably some of the global factors are a little bit more more challenging, but if I start on the local, I think one of the the risks for Asian equities generally I think is and that this crosses time time horizons is we're in that zone where the that Chinese economic model is changing that Chinese economic model is stretching away from that kind of export industry led towards slightly more consumer or consumption and services focused and when you're changing your economic model like that that naturally brings around uncertainties Uh, and and anything that happens with China has uh, reverberations now around around Asia and the world. People used to say when the US sneezes, the uh, the world catches a cold. Well, if China sneezes, Asia and the world catches a cold as well. So we, we always have to have that context of we've got a changing economic model for China and that's going to bring more macro volatility and more macro uncertainty. So that's one factor. Uh, the traders we've already gone over is another factor, so I think you're asking about other other, other areas. I think um, a big risk factor for equity markets, particularly emerging e- equity markets and Asian equity markets are global financial conditions. And when we talk about that, we're talking about the environment for interest rates, bond deals, credit spreads, the US dollar, etc. Now, we've been a very supportive environment for that year to date. We've had this huge repricing of interest rate expectations in the US that has led to a very uh, supportive environment for financial conditions generally. So that environment has almost been perfect uh, for risk assets in the short term horizon. if that changes, that is a big risk factor for Asian equities. Um, and the reality is the bond market has become so bearish uh, yields are so low whereas we don't believe a recession is around the corner so there is a risk that the financial conditions environment changes over the coming quarters bond yields go up you get a little bit more instability in spreads and the dollar, and this could really have a, de- uh, a destabilizing effect on global markets and particular Asian equities.
0: But if, um, let's say, you, you're an investor with a high risk appetite and a long term investment horizon, and you still want to get some exposure to Asia, what funds might be good ways to tap into potential yeah. benefits of Asia?
2: Well, we, so there's a number of different ways that we allocate to Asian equities um, uh, within our business. We, are, we we do often like to blend, so we're you're kind of blending different styles together that we believe are complementary so you know on, on uh, if we look at the regional basis we, we we invest in the tt uh asia pacific equity fund that's for giving it more of a growth uh, growth bias to our strategy underpinned by a quality framework as well we also invest in the schroder um asia income fund as well which is obviously slightly more defensive slightly more uh of a yield kind of uh, and valuation based strategy there i think that these two these two funds for us we've, we've held for for a period of time and the way they behave together is, is, is quite complementary. And, and, and we believe in both the processes of these, uh, the, these companies and, 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 and the managers that are running them and, and the teams that are running them as well. So we'd go for Schroeder's and TT Asia Pacific there for China um, directly for some of those uh, uh, strategies where we've got slightly higher risk appetite. The Janice Henson o- Chinese Opportunities Fund is something that we like as well.
0: Okay, now outside Asia, where do you think are the best investment opportunities at the moment?
2: That's a big, that's a big question uh, and an interesting one. So, uh, if I just uh, take us through, take us through the way we're seeing kind of uh, the, in a multi-asset context, in equities, I would start by saying, from an asset allocation perspective, we we, we quite like U.S. and we quite like Japan at the moment as well. Uh, those uh, markets, rather than Europe. Um, so you know, on an asset allocation, I can get into the funds in a minute if if that helps as well. We are like U.S. And, and Japan on fixed income. Um, you know that hunt for yield argument is back, given that bond yields are suddenly repriced significantly and yields are so low. We actually do think emerging market debt provides a nice opportunity at the moment, where you can get between five percent to seven percent to yields there, with slightly less volatility than the equity market. We think that's attractive, and we think uh, as well that you know if you, people shouldn't give up on absolute return strategies, market neutral um um strategies and we actually like the ManGLG Alpha Select Alternatives fund there that gives us the potential for uh returns that are that are not really correlated with other with other markets.
0: Okay, and for the Japan and the US, I mean, what funds do you particularly like to use there?
2: Well, Japan, we like, uh, again, we like to blend. We, 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 we tend to use a, a combination of the, of the Japanese fund managed by Comgest and Man, ManGLG. Again, there in the, in the US, I won't sit on the fence and just say go passive, but I do believe there are merits to it. Um, we use uh, Bailey Gift American uh, Fund there, again, one of their more growth-focused uh, strategies. But uh, but in the US, that is one of those markets as well where we will blend with more passive um, strategies because ultimately, one of the kind of underpinnings to what we do is making sure we're getting value for money in everything we do. So, we only pay for it if we believe it's going to deliver.
0: Okay. Now, I mean, um, these are sound promising, but there's always two sides to it. I mean, what, what are the main risks investors should consider when investing in the US or Japan?
2: Yeah, I think… Uh, <laughs> Two different kind of risks. I think US, I think we have to have that context of valuation. Uh, valuation is something people often over-talk about in the short term. From my perspective, it's a long-term factor, but nevertheless, subconsciously, it is a it is a slightly uh, uh, more, more, more more expensive market. Um, so we have to take that into account. And one thing, you, you, the US has got probably more potential for inflation risk than a lot of other um, countries, particularly in the developed world. So uh, I think uh, people are mispricing the potential for an inflation scare in the U.S. I think that's going to come back into markets later in the year once we get through this deflation worry. So I'd put valuation and inflation risk in the U.S. as a concern. Japan, I'll be honest with you, is just one of the hardest markets to tactically call. Um, So you almost have to take a a, a longer-term decision. A lot of the old metrics that people used for calling relative performance of Japanese equities, whether it be relationship with US bond yields, relationship with OECD leading indicators, relationship with the global cycle. Some of those relationships are breaking down. So Japan is actually just one of the more difficult markets to the Emerging market debt, what's the risk there? Again, you know, what we're talking about here is all, all dependent on the risk on environment. And, um, you know, this is an area where the risk with emerging market debt probably is a change in the dollar environment and the FX environment, whereas, you know, we all know that... Um, You've got that inverse relation between uh, prices of uh, emerging market uh, debt holdings and and the US dollar.
0: Okay, thank you, Topi. Some really helpful points. That brings us to the end of today's show. But see this week's Investors Chronicle or the website for more on how to handle manager moves, JP Morgan Global Macro Opportunities Fund and Taha's full interview with Jupiter India's manager. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.